From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. On today's program, protecting one of humanity's most precious resources, water. The climate crisis, being the crisis that it is, is of course making that way more difficult. Droughts, superstorms, global warming is really messing with the water cycle. This is particularly tough for farmers because they depend on the rain for their livelihoods. They're tied directly to the climate and to the water cycle in a way many of us aren't anymore. Later on in the program, we're going to visit a community in Niger that's mitigating climate change by adopting new farming techniques designed to stretch every last drop. But first, let's look at the global picture. Droughts and heat waves are causing conflict in leading to migration and political instability. An overuse of freshwater resources like lakes and rivers that's threatening all of us, not just farmers. All of this fascinates Peter Glick, our guest today. I met Peter several years ago when I was reporting on a searing drought in the Central Valley of California. He is the president emeritus of the Pacific Institute, an organization he co-founded back in 1987. In addition to being a MacArthur Genius Fellow, Peter has been a pioneer in teasing out the really difficult relationship between water scarcity and violent conflict. Peter Glick, uh, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm wondering what influenced your decision to study, you know, this sort of area of water scarcity and and especially as it relates to the climate crisis. Well, that's a, you know, that's a very personal question. I mean, I I have a long interest in environmental issues. I've worked on environmental issues for almost four decades now. I looked early on at the way resources and conflict were connected to thinking, well, maybe we should talk more about oil and conflicts over energy resources. And that work actually led me to water. You know, we can replace oil. We can replace natural gas and coal with renewable energy. And and we better do that faster than we're doing it. But water is a renewable resource. There's no substitute for water. And so the idea that water was increasingly a source of competition, that it was increasingly going to be scarce, that climate change was going to and now is affecting water resources has really led me and and the Pacific Institute to intensify our focus on water resources. You know, you know water is connected to everything we care about, food, ecosystems, forests, uh, human health. And the positive side of that is that despite all these problems, I believe there's solutions to these problems. I can see a path to a sustainable future for water. Uh, we're not on it yet, but we could be. Uh, and that's that's really what keeps me going. So, you know, in a, in a global sense, how does the climate crisis affect the availability of fresh water? I imagine it's pretty hard to generalize, but, but for, you know, for a non-scientist, how would you break that down in terms of how those two things are related? Well, actually, it's pretty easy to generalize. Um, let, let's set aside the climate question for a second. Uh, we live on a water planet. There's tons of water all around. But one of the main characteristics of the fresh water in particular Uh, is that it's badly distributed. We don't get it where we want it. There are dry places and wet places. Uh, There are parts of the year when places don't get any rain or any water at all, and other parts of the year when we get tremendous amounts of rainfall or snow. So a fundamental characteristic of water is that it's badly distributed in space and time. That by itself causes all sorts of water problems, scarcity in some places, competition for water, problems with water quality. Uh, And then when you impose human-caused climate change on top of that, which we're doing right now, many of the existing global water problems simply get much, much worse, much more hard to handle. 
You all did something pretty interesting at the Pacific Institute. You dug through, I think, about 3,000 years of history, right? And looked at the way that water has been at play in conflict over all those years. Can, can you tell me a little bit about that and what you found? Yes, that's right. So one of the things we do at the Institute and have for quite a while uh, is we track water-related conflicts anywhere where there's been violence associated with water. And we maintain a database, an open-source database, And yes, it goes back, interestingly enough, thousands of years. Some of the earliest entries are from the ancient Middle East, from ancient Mesopotamia, where there were recorded conflicts over access to water from the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, really going back to the 2000 BC era. And we look at water and conflict in three ways. Uh, We look at where water has been a trigger of conflict, and this is really where Water scarcity is important, as in, I want your water, tensions over access to water or control of water. That's Hmm. one category. Another category is where water has been a weapon used in conflicts that may start for other reasons, conflicts that are religious or ideological or economic or political, but where water or water systems have been used as a weapon. Hmm. What's an example of that? So when uh, in in recent days, for example, uh, we've seen control of dams, interestingly enough, also on the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers in Iraq and Syria, uh, be used to either release water downstream to flood villages or to hold back water to deny access to water to villages downstream of those dams. And then the third piece is where water or water systems are casualties or targets of conflict. Uh, And again, in recent years, we've seen attacks on civilian water infrastructure So all of those are pieces of the database. So how are things changing in that long chronology when we look at this current period of time where we're pumping fossil fuels into the atmosphere and and rapidly warming up the planet and sort of changing the availability of, of resources around the world? Well, we know that there's scarcity for water in different places at different times. Uh, The Western U.S. is much drier than the Eastern U.S. Uh, The Middle East, of course, is a tremendously water-scarce region. Parts of India are wet during the monsoon seasons but can experience severe droughts at different times. So water scarcity varies from place to place and from time to time. Uh, One of the characteristics of climate change, though, is that we're already seeing changes in the global hydrologic cycle. We're seeing changes in rainfall patterns. We're seeing changes in extremes of both floods and droughts. We know that the global temperature and regional temperatures are going up and that increases evaporation and the demand for water. So Hmm. so climate change is making many of the existing problems with scarcity even worse. And And I would note that even without climate change, growing populations put more pressure on water resources. The more people we have, for a fixed amount of water, the more pressure and tension there is over those water resources. Many rivers around the world no longer reach the ocean, either ever or during Hmm. critical parts of the year. They're simply used up by human withdrawals, and the Colorado River is a good example of that. Uh, The Colorado River starts in the Rocky Mountains in the United States. It flows through seven states uh, and then into Mexico, and we have an agreement with Mexico about sharing the river. But we don't have an agreement with the environment. And between (laughs) the U.S. and Mexico, we use it all. There there have been some efforts in the last few years to try and restore some ecosystem flows to the Colorado River Delta, which is in Mexico. But there are no guarantees 
Yeah, you know, even when we have a political agreement over sharing a river around the world, we almost never take into account the environmental needs of those rivers. And so the Nile is almost completely used up. The Yellow River in China doesn't reach the sea during many parts of the year. The Colorado River, many rivers around the world are in that unfortunate, sad situation of scarcity. So I want to ask you about another case study that I I know you spent some time looking into, and that's the uh, the conflict in in Syria, which you know is estimated to have cost about four hundred thousand lives at this point. I think. What role do you think that water had in this massively deadly war that's been unfolding there? Uh, we've done some work for quite some time on water conflicts, especially in the Middle East and especially in relation to the Syrian conflict. And here's the connection. The Middle East experienced an extraordinarily severe multi-year drought starting in the middle 2000s, 2006, 2007, 2008. Flows in the Tigris and the Euphrates dropped enormously. Rainfall was tremendously short, and that affected agricultural production throughout the region. I would also note that the climate science community now understands that that drought wasn't caused by climate change, but was worsened and influenced by climate change, that that drought was longer and hotter and more severe than it otherwise would have been without climate change. The drought led to losses, especially in Syria, in agricultural production and a collapse of much of the Syrian agricultural economy. That, in turn, led to migration out of the rural areas into the cities of young people especially looking for work Many of those cities where the violence first began that ultimately turned into the Syrian civil war. So we have climate change influencing drought, drought influencing agricultural production and the economy, changes in the economy leading to changes in political and social unrest. Now, the Syrian civil war may have occurred anyway, but we now know that climate and water were a component of that conflict. So in terms of lessening the risk of these conflicts or distributing water a little bit more evenly. Do you think tech has a role here or are you are you skeptical of those concepts? So the work that we do at the Institute to try and understand first the history of conflicts over water uh, is really designed to think about solutions to that problem. How can we prevent conflicts over water? How can we reduce the risk that water plays a factor in any of these disputes in the future? And we're doing extensive work on identifying those solutions. And one aspect of that is indeed technology. Using water more efficiently so that the water we're already using goes farther, we grow more food with better irrigation systems. Uh, Our cities can become more efficient with better toilets and washing machines and showerheads and industrial processes. And technology plays a big role there. 97% of the water on the planet is salt water. It's too salty to drink. It's too salty to use to grow crops. But we do know how to desalinate water. It's already a critical technology in many parts of the world. It just happens to be really, really expensive. Uh, It's energy intensive. It's infrastructure intensive. But as a last resort, desalination is absolutely an option. What's a place or two that's doing something really smart to better use or allocate their water resources? Yeah, so that's the good news. There are success stories out there, and I'll I'll give you a couple of examples. Singapore is a very water-short area. It's a small area. It's a big city. They're dependent for part of their water resources on water from Malaysia, which is a political concern for them. 
And so they've extensively invested first in water efficiency, in improving the use of the water they already have. Secondly, they collect and recycle and all of their wastewater. They treat their wastewater to a very high standard and they reuse it. And third, they've invested extensively in desalination. Reusing wastewater, I think some people might hear that and be potentially like grossed out by that idea. What, is that, what does that mean yeah. exactly? So here's the thing. We produce an enormous amount of wastewater. We take shower, it goes down the drain, we flush our toilets, industrial uses, use water and, and dispose of it, and it goes to our wastewater systems. We treat it typically to a very high standard, and then again, typically, we throw it away. Uh, in California, we th we're on the coast, we collect our wastewater, we treat it, we put it in the ocean and get rid of it. But we can treat that water to any standard we want, including completely potable, high-quality water. Uh, and we can reuse it for whatever we want. And Singapore, they treat it to a very high standard and they put it back in their reservoirs. Uh, sometimes they use it for industrial purposes. They're, they're not yet using it for what we call direct potable reuse that is drinking it right away, but we could. We, can, we produce water to that standard. Uh, and we're doing that in Israel now. They're collecting and treating and reusing their wastewater for agriculture. California is, uses about 15% of its wastewater for uh, recharging groundwater for industrial purposes or for watering landscapes. We're gonna see more and more of that. That's a source of supply that we can no longer afford to throw away. You know, if someone's listening to this and they're wondering how they could do something to help? Um, as an individual listener, what, what can someone do? I think one of the things we can all do is to better understand how much water we use, why we use it, where that water comes from, and how we can reduce our own footprint. Uh, we use water in showers and dishwashers and washing machines and toilets in the industrialized world. And we can meet all of those needs. We can wash our clothes and wash our dishes and take our showers and flush our toilets with less water than we're using today by improving the technology that we use. Uh, we use water outdoors in our gardens when we have gardens and in our lawns, which are incredibly water intensive. And so one thing we can do is think about our own personal water footprint and reduce that water footprint. Uh, we can also work with our local communities to think about, all right, where's that water coming from? Can I reduce the environmental impacts of, of the way my community collects and uses and disposes of water? And then, of course, obviously, the politics is an important piece of this. We can vote for candidates who understand or care about water, who are thinking about, all right, how can I invest money in our communities to make our, our water systems better? Uh, all of those are important things that individuals can do. As you look to the future, like 2050, 2100, what do you think are the biggest risks in terms of water scarcity and climate? Well, we see growing risks, of course, in the Middle East, where water is scarce, where climate change is already raising temperatures and tensions. Uh, I, I think that's going to continue to be a problem. I think we're going to see more and more tensions in the Sahel in northern Africa over access to water. Uh, as populations continue to grow, as economies continue to put pressure on water resources, and as the politics of those regions continue to be very difficult. Uh, we're seeing growing tensions throughout southern Asia, in India, and in Pakistan, and Afghanistan, in Iran, over access to water and over scarcity of water and extreme events. I also worry about the big rivers that come off the Himalayas. We're, we're seeing climate change melting the glaciers in the Himalayan mountains, 
There are major, many major rivers that come off the Himalayas, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, the Salween, the Mekong, uh, that all of which cross international borders and almost all of which have no political agreements about those water resources. And billions of people depend on those water resources. So I worry about those regions as well. What gives you hope about us being able to fix some of these problems? I, I am an optimist, typically, although I have to admit it's getting harder to be optimistic every year. <laughs> but, but I do believe that there are solutions to all of these problems that we've talked about. We could meet basic human needs for water for everyone on the planet. Uh, we can address water quality problems. We have the technology to produce incredibly clean water anywhere. Uh, we know how to address climate change. That you know, We're not doing it adequately, but we know how to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases, and we know that we need to adapt to those climate changes we can no longer avoid. We know that there are political solutions to sharing water that crosses borders, uh, to preventing water from being used as a target during conflicts. There's international law that addresses that. Uh, we know that there's technology and economic strategies to use water more carefully or to expand our use of high-quality wastewater or to desalinate water or to price water properly. We, we know what solutions are, and that's what gives me hope, that we can just more aggressively push for the success stories that we see around us to take water out of the political arena uh, and to solve our water problems. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can move in that direction more quickly than we are. I'm hopeful too. Peter Glick, thank you so much for, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. That was Peter Glick, co-founder of the Pacific Institute in Oakland, California. We turn now to the Sahel region of West Africa, right on the border of the Sahara Desert. This is one of the places in the world where weather patterns are changing and farmers are struggling. In Niger, farming has always been a way of life for countless generations, but in recent years, it's become less viable. Now, a new program aims to help farmers increase their yields and their profits. Reporter Portia Crow has the story. Water, our most important resource. It's what keeps us alive. But in the dry, dusty, West African country Niger, water can be difficult to come by. Or maybe not. All these areas you have that are dry, if you drill, drill a well there, you have the water less than three meters. This is Saini Ganda. He's an engineer on a mission to fight food insecurity in Niger through drip irrigation. That means using pipes that release tiny droplets of water in the precise spots where you've planted to avoid wasting water. Ganda helped spearhead a government-run project to teach farmers about drip irrigation and then started his own company installing the equipment. So how do you access all that underground water? By using another Nigerian resource that's never in short supply, the sun. That same scorching sun that bakes the land can be harnessed by solar-powered pumps to bring table water to the surface. You know, if you, you are doing irrigation with gravity, you will lose about 40 to 50% of the water you mobilize. But in, in drip irrigation, the efficiency is up to 95%. Today, we're driving around southeastern Niger to meet some of Saini Ganda's clients. 
His goal is to show Nigerian farmers that drip irrigation is more efficient than regular irrigation and can save them time and money in the long run. It can also help them mitigate the effects of climate change, which is complicating farming in the country. On a small farmer's plot surrounded by goats and dry shrubbery, Gonda shows me how the pump system works. This is a filter, valves, tank for fertilizer. Very simple system. So we're on the Route Nationale, the national route, the number one highway that crosses all regions of Niger. We're heading southeast out of Niamey towards uh, the village of Garou and Bangoubi and Balaré. To see how drip irrigation is changing lives, we visit a collective of women farmers in the village of Garou. Their farm looks like an oasis of green in the middle of the dusty Sahel. Walking through the fields, you can hear women laughing and talking as they tend to their crops, just as they've done for many years. But now, there's a difference. They're using solar-powered drip irrigation. The first time Rahina Adamu used the technology, she thought it was broken. In the beginning, I couldn't believe it, because I was used to seeing lots of water on the surface. I had no confidence in those little drops. Rahina's 26 and has been farming for nine years, but she's used to the traditional way of irrigating, collecting water from a well with a bucket and dumping it on her crops. Since taking part in a government-run solar-powered drip scheme, Rahina can now earn more income for her family, and it's less time-intensive, so she only needs to tend to her crops three times a week. Solar-powered drip irrigation has the potential to change lives in this country, where temperatures can soar to 120 degrees Fahrenheit and the climate is rapidly changing. Niger hasn't faced famine recently, but it's not food secure either, and its population is set to double over the next 10 years. Just to give you a little bit of context, uh, Ilonia rains uh, about two months of the year, and also... uh, with the climate change, uh, rain patterns have changed. That's Valentin Uweo, a project coordinator with the World Bank's International Finance Corporation. Sitting in his office back in the capital city, Niamey, he tells me how the rains now come more sporadically than they used to. And when they do come, it's usually in one big deluge, which is bad for crops. What plants need is a nice, steady stream of water, which drip irrigation supplies want to be as efficient as you can. Um, so by using drip technology, the water goes directly to the plant, but also since it's coming very slowly, it doesn't evaporate very quickly. So it goes deeper in the soil. Irrigation can help smooth over irregular rainy seasons. And Valentin says it helps farmers like Rahina and others working in the fields. They usually used to spend the whole day in the field use, using a bucket going back and forth to the well. But now they can just open a valve and turn the solar pump on and then the water goes all the way to their crop. Some women are, have started doing small income generating revenues on the side. The good thing about solar um, is the, sol- the, the solar, um, the, sun. S- the sun is free. And free is good for Niger. 
It's the fourth poorest country in the world, according to the World Bank, with a GDP per capita of only $414 in 2018. It needs to maximize all of its resources to sustain its growth. Donc le Niger étant un pays du Sahel et qui est caractérisé par cette variabilité des changements climatiques. Because Niger is a Sahel country characterized by climate change and affected by food insecurity, each year about 10 to 15 percent of the population ends up short of food. Ali Beiti is a government minister tasked with fighting food insecurity in Niger. On a vu avec la population du Niger qui est maintenant 21-22 millions d'habitants. We know that Niger's population, which is currently 21 or 22 million, is growing between 3.6 and 3.9 percent per year. So we need to expand the land we are irrigating to ensure we can meet the needs of our growing population. Niger will reach 50 million people by the year 2030, so the population will more than double. He oversees a lot of agricultural initiatives in the country, but solar power drip irrigation is one of the technologies he's most excited about. We need to develop the irrigation industry to help people find work. If people can work in agriculture, then they're not sitting around in their villages. They won't move abroad. They'll be able to create value, enrich their lives and provide for their families. It also means they won't be tempted to join the terrorists to earn a little money. That's a growing risk in the country, where ISIS-linked groups are expanding operations. We have the land, we have the water, we have the manpower, and the government is providing a financing mechanism so that everyone can earn money through agriculture and everyone can produce. We are standing here in the middle of the Sahel, near a little village called Garou, southeast of Niamey. You can hear the wind. What you can't see is the dust or feel the heat. Today is harvest day at uh, this small farm in Garou. So we have some women working the fields, harvesting their okra plants, doubled over in the field, picking up okra, and later they'll go to the market to sell it, or they'll send somebody together as a collective to sell their products at the market. <laughs> Fatima Haruma, a 70-year-old farmer, has just finished harvesting okra to sell at market. I've been a farmer for more than 30 years. Nowadays, there is not enough rain. Also, the heat, it's... Than before. Fatima has a small plot of land where she uses solar-powered drip irrigation to grow okra and melons. I earn more money now with drip irrigation. It helps me to afford breakfast for my children and grandchildren and pay their school fees. The initial investment in solar-powered drip irrigation can be expensive. But the government, with the help of the World Bank and Climate Investment Funds, has subsidized some of that cost for farmers. They wanted to develop the market and show farmers how much the technology could change their lives. 
But to make it truly sustainable, they also brought in the private sector, which is historically weak in Niger. This brings us back to Sani Ganda, the engineer we met earlier. His company, Niratec, has been busy installing solar-powered irrigation around Niger, a country nearly twice the size of Texas. In addition to installation, Ganda trains farmhands in how to repair the equipment if it breaks down, and sends his own technicians if need be. Unlike so many other failed development projects, he thinks the key to sustaining the industry is having technical expertise on the ground and regularly checking up on clients. We visited one of those clients, just outside of Niamey. Gonda's checkups have been key for Shetima Mamadou Manla. A large-scale agribusinessman, he first started using drip irrigation years ago, but the equipment broke down because it wasn't installed properly. It wasn't until he met Sani Ganda that he started to realize the full benefits of the technology. Now, he wants to convert all of his crops to drip irrigation. On today's visit, Ganda is showing Shetima how to rid the equipment of insects and rodents to keep it running smoothly. Everywhere we walk, Sani Ganda stops to tweak a pipe, prune a tree, or point out an error to the farmhands. He thinks precision is the key to success. You have to be efficient. You have to be professional. You have to... to exact. You want yes. to be exact. Yes, yes. So you will earn money. Otherwise, you will waste your time. You will waste your money. You will waste other people's time. And at the end, you will abandon. Shetima's plot is so big, he has a calendar to show which days to irrigate which sections. He tells me how he's already investing and expanding and hopes to recoup that investment mm. within five years. This is the filtration system. This is filtration. Okay. And these are pipes, so every 30 centimeters it looks like you yeah, have. Yeah, every 30 centimeters we have. You the have landscape has changed from when he first started farming more than 30 years ago. Climate change has made once fertile ground difficult to farm. Initially, when I'm young, uh, in the north of my village, you have to run more than 300 kilometers to see the Sahara. By now, my village is in the, in the Sahara. We live in Sahara. For Shetima, farming is more than just a job. It's a calling and a way to help his fellow Nigerians. I like this business. It is a nice business because uh, uh, you can give some food for everybody, and uh, we can create a job for lots of people. Before drip irrigation, he didn't see agriculture as a viable full-time job. As weather conditions get worse, he may have even chosen to give it up altogether. But now Shetima, who's also a politician and runs a separate business in town, is moving his family from the city to his farm in the hopes of making it a full-time occupation. His agricultural business is looking good, and he imagines a future where his children stay in the country and farm the land alongside him. I, I pray. You pray? Yep, I pray God to give them the love of this work. I'm Portia Crow, reporting from Niger. As we just heard, financing climate projects in developing countries can be transformative for the lives and livelihoods of local people. But getting investors on board can sometimes be a tricky task. Next week on Heat of the Moment, we'll hear from Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stieglitz on this topic and more. 
I think markets are often short-sighted. And there's a sort of a, an unrealistic optimism that somehow this problem of climate change is going to go away. Uh, it's unpleasant, and we always want things that are unpleasant uh, to go away. That's next week on the podcast. That's it for this episode of Heat of the Moment, which is a co-production of FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent the stance of foreign policy, the Climate Investment Funds, or their partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson, with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening.